back, everybody. This is The Changelog, and I'm your host, Adam Stachowiak. This is episode 137, and today, Jared and I talked to Ryan Rao, the maker of Hubeboard. Hubeboard is a comp on board for GitHub issues. Fun conversation today with Ryan about open source, licensing, taking contributions, building his business on top of somebody else's business, GitHub issues, their API, a lot of fun conversation. Uh, we have some awesome sponsors to mention for this show today. CodeShip, TopTal, and DigitalOcean. We'll tell you a bit more about TopTal and DigitalOcean later in the show. But our friends at CodeShip, big shout out to them because they just launched a brand new design. Looks beautiful, by the way. Uh, CodeShip is a hosted continuous deployment service that just works. You can easily set up continuous integration for your application in just a few steps and automatically deploy your code when all your tests pass. CodeShip has great support for lots of languages, test frameworks, as well as notification services. They easily integrate with GitHub or Bitbucket and can deploy your code to cloud services like Heroku, AWS, Nojitsu, Google App Engine, or even your own servers. Setup takes just three minutes, so you can get started today with their free plan and make sure you use the code, the ChangeLaw Podcast, to get a 20% discount for three months on any plan you choose. Again, that code is... The Changelog Podcast. Make sure you use that code. Head to codeship.com slash the changelog. Tell them we sent you. And now on to the show. What's up, everybody? We are back. This is Jared with the Changelog. Got Adam Stack in the house. Adam, what's up? Adam Stack. Yes, yes. that's me. Woohoo! And we're joined today by Ryan Rao with Hubor.com. Ryan's a guy we met down at Keeper Be Weird in the fall. Enjoyed talking to him, and we're interested in what he was up to with this open source product. Ryan, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, guys. Austin, Texas, man. ATX in the house. ATX, but you're not from ATX. Oh no, I'm. I was cornfields. Yeah, I'm originally Potatoes. from north northeast Iowa. Northeast, teeny tiny town called Cresco. Okay, yeah. I um my hometown butts up to the. The Iowegians, uh, but that's on the west side. <laughs> on the west side of Iowa, I've never heard that before. Iowegians, you from you from the great state of Nebraska? That's right, Omaha. Right. But uh, I've 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 drove through there a few times. It's, it's pretty fun to go ninety five plus on I seventy. Yeah, not much, no. not much to see, but you can definitely drive fast because there aren't too many folks around either. Right. So Ryan, tell us about uh, about Hubboard. So what is Hubeboard? What is it? What does it do? Uh, you know, I've I, I get asked this all the time, and I keep trying to refine it. Uh, when I first launched it, it was GitHub issues made awesome. Um, but I've been trying to like better describe it as it's really like a project management solution for teams and or like GitHub organizations. Um, the reason I say that is because we we don't really just deal with GitHub issues anymore. We've added some features around like linking repos together so you can have this like holistic view mm. of of your, you know, your entire project. Um, so you can link repos together and you can also like manage milestones across multiple repos. So which is was kind of a challenge to to implement as well. So it's kind of broadened in scope over time, but when you first kicked it off it was you were using github issues you thought they were lacking this project management uh visual it, 
Kanban thing and you decided to build it? Were you just scratching your own inch back in the day? I guess it was really born out of a a need or maybe even like a hatred of other tools that I've used in the past. You want to Uh, name any names? uh, I I don't, (laughs) I don't think, I don't think the great hatred tool needs to be mentioned more like the the Baltimore. Yes. Everybody's everybody's used the tool that will not be named. And although like I, I, I'll just come out and say like, it's usually Jira. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, I think it's it's a fantastic tool for businesses. It's so it's so uh, configurable almost to a fault, right? Like yes, you you can you can put so many rules uh, dictating the the flow of your issues with that tool that sometimes it gets cumbersome to use. What really made Hubboard come about was uh, you know a little over three years ago I came to Austin to work for a company. And we were building a, a really complex, as far as like business rules and requirements, uh, enterprise application for like large, large enterprise uh, HR needs. And so there was a lot of rules around like who could see what data and and things of that nature. Like we really had this fine grained requirement to lock down security down to like the field level of like like Sally Sue can't see the salary of X person, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. If he's, if they're not in this certain role. And so to fit that bill, we actually ended up building a, a web framework and we decided to open source it to try to like kind of get a, a groundswell or like a, a force multiplier of productivity. And so we of course hosted that on GitHub and it, that framework was called FUBU MVC. So Sort of as open source developers on GitHub, you know, we were in GitHub, love GitHub. Mm-hmm. Uh, we ended up choosing it for the business side of things as well. And so when you're, rather than using multiple tools, we kind of settled upon GitHub issues for the product side of things, right? And what we kind of found was, you know, the simplicity of it is fantastic for an open source project, but it's it has some shortcomings as far as like communicating to a business and prioritizing a business's needs, you know, versus an open source like project. Okay. GitHub issues is fantastic, but it, it doesn't really have any prioritization or, or any sense of where things are, whether they're in progress or, you know, yeah. in review. I don't know if you guys have ever personally tried to use GitHub. Yes. Like issues to manage a project. We've gone um, off and on using that between um, – we use Trello now, but we we mainly don't use GitHub issues because we use Trello and we have business sides of the house that need to sort of play a part in moving cards around and seeing the state of things and commenting and coordinating and stuff. So Trello is fits for us, but we did try GitHub issues way back in the day and it was label hell. It was – you know. The same thing you're talking about. You couldn't really tell where something, where something was at in the process. So, and that's what we liked about Trello, which was this sort of Kanban approach to to how you can do things. Right, and and Trello's fantastic too. Right, like it's it's extremely simple, and for non technical stakeholders, it's it's a lot easier to say, oh, hey, here's this tool, and it really only is around like 
issue management or like project planning rather than trying to get a non-stakeholder to be like, oh, hey, you have – okay, so we use this thing called GitHub. Right. And you have to explain what GitHub is. And then you have to like – they have to go create an account in it. And they're like, well, why do I need this account just to manage issues? Right. And Yeah, very confusing. Um, so there's definitely We have that with short- documentation too because we have wikis and some documentation in our right. repos. And it's just like unless you're a developer on the development team, you don't see that stuff and it's – or they do. They just forget they have a GitHub account. And they they don't know how to log in. It's just like it's totally foreign to them, right? And so you know, back to being at, at this company, we ran into all these problems, right? Because we didn't want to like use different tools. And at this point, we have you know hundreds of open issues. You know, a lot of them like two to three years old in GitHub. And you know, we started like making duplicates of old issues. So it just became like a bit of a nightmare to manage. And so we started playing around with the API and, and trying to find solutions as as to like how how maybe we could better organize them, right? And so we came up with this tool called, at the time I think we called it Hookshot. And so what we did is we subscribed to the issue webhook, right? And so anytime a, an issue was closed, if it didn't have this reviewed label, we would basically reopen it and add a needs review label to it and assign it to our QA engineer. Mm. And so for a while that really worked. So, you know, we would, we would basically create an issue in GitHub and then we would use the, the linking part. Uh, It's a feature in GitHub where if you reference an issue number in a commit message, it will actually link that SHA and that commit in the discussion history of a GitHub issue. With the timestamp and stuff. With a timestamp and it, and you could like click on it and go and and you could and you can like actually make inline comments on like a, a certain line of the commit and those actually come through into the to the GitHub issue discussion. And they actually have some really fantastic features around like really integrating it in with your code, right? And so that really helped like our our testing and QA engineers see like they could go to the so they would get tagged with needs review, right? And they would get it assigned to them and they'd look at it and be like and they would be able to easily reference back into the code like what actually changed. And so we like really fell in love with that functionality and when we hit some of these shortcomings of GitHub as far as like communicating the business what we were doing, right? Because we're we're programming, right? We're like we're we're busting out features. We're we're being productive, but you know some of the stakeholders didn't really see that. They didn't really understand how to extract that value out of GitHub, right? Because mm-hmm. they just they didn't they didn't really see it. Like you can't see the progress, and so uh, we didn't want to lose that code linking, but we saw this need for like visibility to the business. So we started looking at tools like Trello, like Pivotal Tracker, like Jira. And uh, I came up with a crazy idea. I was like, well, what if we, you know, what if we uh, had this conventional label, right? Almost like a Kanban board. Like we, c- we could just name a label like with a certain pattern. And then I could use the API to pull all those labels and then turn those into columns. And if you drug one issue from another one, I just remove that label and add the other one, right? Mm-hmm. And so... 
you know, I just spent a weekend or two hacking on it. And that was what birthed the first version of what eventually became Whoboard. So, and at that time, I called it uh, Inch Pebbles. Inch Pebbles. Yes, it was a playoff <laughs> of milestones. Okay, uh, Inch Pebbles. Like nice. Milestone Inch Pebble. Got right? it. Got it. And so, so clever. Uh, yeah, very clever, right? <laughs> and so, Inch Pebbles was born. It was hosted on a free Dino on Heroku, right? I'm a .NET developer. I don't know any Ruby, so I write it in Ruby because you know Heroku was like free. And I kind of wanted to learn Ruby, so it was just kind of like this, this side project. Right? Yeah, it's okay. 2011. So it's just like the side project. It's running on a free dyno. It really only like had you couldn't create issues or anything. It was effectively like you could navigate to this page that had the same URL structure as GitHub, and you would see this Kanban board just magically appear as long as you had these specially named labels. And we could drag them, like, basically say, hey, here, business, here's this Kanban board that can just show you this, like, read view of what we're doing. So, right? Th- it sounds like you could still use issues as normal with a dev, with a dev team, but mm-hmm. hand them Hueboard, the business team, Hueboard, and just especially name some labels. Is that is that what you're talking about at this point? Where right. you still so, had issues and it still worked the way issues works, but you can use this in tandem. Right. It was it was really it's really just a different view on top of GitHub issues. Like there's no separate data model. Like it would pull the issues from the API and create cards from each issue. And it would look at the labels on the issue. And if it had one of these conventional labels on it, it would then be in that column. It would just be represented in that column, gotcha. right? Yeah. And it just had a really simple like if like a like jQuery draggable, like oh, if you drag it over here, then it just made an API call that removed X label and added the other one, right? That represented the new column. And so it just was born out of pure need and pure simplicity, right? I started showing people that I knew. I'd be like, oh yeah, I made this cool thing. Check this out, and like I would just show it to people, and they're like, yeah, that's that's cool. Like we would we would kind of be interested in using that. So. I was convinced to like show the world, like reveal it, like let let people use it. So I go shopping for the domain name Inch Pebbles, and it's taken. What? It's like, yeah, it's like parked by this blog, man. So I did. I just didn't want to. I didn't want to go through the hassle of trying to get that name from whoever, you know, randomly had it. Somebody else thought of Inch Pebbles. That's what I'm impressed I by. I guess. I don't know. And uh, the nice. tagline of this this blog is like uh, dealings, dealing with life's milestones or something like uh, that. I mean, like it even had the same word same play. Same exact it. It play. Was, <sighs> it was so great. <laughs> uh, so then we started, you know, brainstorming on names and it was like, you know, things were thrown around like octocards, octoboard, you know, kind of playing off the octocat thing. Mm-hmm. But then that didn't really have anything to do with like a board or I don't know. So somebody just threw out like what if, what about Hueboard, right? Like the play on the play on words from Hubot. Yeah. And so it had some like it kind of had like a backwards tie in back to GitHub, but it really kind of gave us the you know gave me the freedom to sort of be unique in a way or claim that I wasn't. So like if you ever wanted to like use it or like build an adapter for a different 
issue tracker, maybe it, you know the the word would or the name would still be relevant. Yeah. So yeah, Hubboard was born. And Jared and I were um, saying we th- we thought it was Hub Hubboard, Hubboard. I don't know. Hub-board. Too many. I don't know. Is there's not Hub-board. two B's? I know? don't know. You know, it was just I was lost. You know, as you guys, you probably know this, Ryan, as developers, you know, we spend most of our time reading words on the internet. Yeah. And we Mm -hmm. don't ever have to say those words out loud to anybody. And so we all come up with our own, like, just rendering of what that actually sounds like. And then we get together with other developers and we finally use that word and they give us this stare like, man, what are you talking about? And you just realize that, like, my my version of that word is just, like, completely does not line up with reality. It's like uh, OzCon or OSCon. Yeah. Oh, it's... Or Imgur. I don't even know what that is. See? <laughs> yeah, you never, you never go on Imgur? <laughs> yeah, exactly. M-I-G-U-R. Oh, now I know Imgur. Yeah. yeah, exactly yeah. like that. Yeah. No, it's Imgur. <laughs> Definitely Imgur. Imgur. Um, so you mentioned, you know, switching out, uh, you know, the possibility, because the name is a little bit distinct, that you could have a separate back end, um, which makes me think of, of of one concern that I had, you know, hearing about it is like, uh, you know, because you're building a business, you've built a business around Hubboard, and you've we'll talk about you know kind of some of the challenges and things that happen around this business around an open source product. But were you scared to? Uh, obviously, not scared enough. But did it bother you, or uh, that you're building a product on top of somebody else's product? At first, you know, I I really didn't. I guess I didn't have when I set out to build it. I didn't particularly have the the intention of turning it into a business, right? So my concerns around not having the stickiness of the tool, I like to call it stickiness, right? Like, I don't own the data model. It literally all, all that controls Hubboard is still in GitHub, right? Hubboard is not the single source of truth at all right. for, for what represents the state of, of the board. So there's really not much stickiness in the tool. Mm-hmm. Like, it's really easy to use it, try it out, uh, even use it for a while, and then maybe you outgrow it and you could go to something else. There's nothing keeping you using the tool, right? That's a blessing and a curse, though, because you also have – it's really yeah. easy to try it out, too. Right. So there's your blessing. The curse is it's also really easy to just to ditch it. Just to ditch it. So being that I didn't set out with the intention of turning it into a business, I didn't really care that it wasn't sticky, Right. And also, it was kind of a a thought experiment, or even just like a challenge, kind of like a like it was it was fun to try to see how far you could stretch using an API and not have a database whatsoever, right? Like Hubboard existed, and I kept adding features like linking repos together, um, custom ordering of like keeping the order of where cards were flipping the board on its side on like milestones where the columns were milestones, uh, being able to order milestones as in like a custom order instead of the due date. Mm-hmm. All these things I was able to do for free. Like I didn't have a database. Like it cost me nothing to host it. It, it pretty much lived on a free Heroku dyno for like over two years. Wow. I think, I think, at its peak, when it, when I wasn't charging any money, it was somewhere around like, and again, like I didn't have intention to make it a business, so I didn't even really have any metrics on like how many users there were. Right, the only metric I had to go by was uh, 
like GitHub has this thing when you create an application, they'll show you how many keys your your OAuth ac- a- application has authorized. Mm-hmm. And so at the time, it was like somewhere around 6,000 or something, right? I don't know how, you know, I've never spent a dollar on marketing or anything, but somehow like it just groundswelled into like like all this interest in people using it. And it didn't cost me anything to host. So I was like, oh, okay, la-di-da, you know, like I just kept trying to trying to stretch it, trying to stretch it, see how far I could take it without having a database. And then when the when the time came to where like it, it kind of got so big that that other companies saw it as like an opportunity to make money. I had a decision to make, right? It was like, let, let my experiment die. Like, let the thing I build, built die to people who were, like, turning it into a business or turn it into a business myself, right? All right, let's pause the show for a minute, give a shout-out to a sponsor. I want to talk to you about Tata. We've been working with them for the, the last year, and it's just been a great time working with them. We thought it would make some sense to circle back and talk to some of our listeners who have applied with Tata and have been accepted because only about 2 to 3% of the engineers who apply make it past their strict elite engineer process. And that person is Daniel Lazon, a longtime fan and listener of the changelog. He is now living the dream as an elite engineer at TopTal. And I say living the dream because he's now able to have 100% control of the types of projects and technologies he's working on, as well as the rate he wants to charge. Daniel earns 100% of his income as a TopTal engineer. And he wanted me to pass on his seal of approval, so to speak, of the top top experience. And for those of you out there who are freelancing or who would like to test out freelancing or even try out a no-risk freelance-like project while you maintain your full-time position, you got to check out TopTal. If you think you have what it takes, head to TopTal.com to get started. Tell them the changelog sent you. And now back to the show. And you had some real competition come in and right. offer a very similar product. Is that... Fair to say, there's a couple of competitors that come into the space, and some some of them are like really really similar, as far as like almost clones. And like then forked your others, repo, yeah, right. Now, I don't think anyone's forked the repo <laughs> per se, but um, they definitely were largely inspired by by Hubert, right? And that's not bad. Like competition is good, right? It it convinced me that that it was a viable thing, right? Yeah. It, it inspired me to like take it seriously and take it to the next level and like like build in things like SSL support and and stuff like that. At the same time, like if I could do it all over again, it sure would be nice to have some some inkling of stickiness to the tool, right? Like but at the same time like it it's it's okay, you know. It still gets a lot of a lot of interest and a lot of people use it and like it even though I guess it's a challenge to keep it keep the tool compelling and good enough that people stick around even though there's really no reason to, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a testimonial for the tool. It's awesome you got there with no marketing too, to to have that many OAuth keys in in use. Is this I'm looking at our notes and I I've got a note here that April nineteenth, twenty twelve was when you Said somehow on Twitter, somehow Hubboard grows to forty or sorry, four hundred users. Is that the six thousand? Is that post that or before that? For you know, I don't remember. I was preparing for the show. I was trying to go back in my in my Twitter history 
and like figure out like how big it was at certain points, right? right. And that was just a random tweet that I came across, right? Mm. So Hubor.com really kind of launched, like I wouldn't say it like actually launched, right? Like uh, I, I told people about it on my personal blog um, in January of 2012. And by April, four months later, there was already 400 people like using it. By the time like I got to the 6,000 mark was when I really took it to like actually formed a business out of it and launched mm. it, uh, launched it out of free for everyone, you know, over a year later, somewhere in like October of 2013 is when we, so when we, so when I actually so like. So keyboarding came to play. Right. So when, so when I formed like an LLC to actually charge money to people. It was over a year, you know, later, yeah. and and it had still it had grown up to like that many, like huh. user keys that had been authorized. That's, that's not crazy. that's probably not like a fair metric as to how many people were actually using it, right? Like, because some people would maybe like check it out and then you know you tick the number, but uh, it was pretty. It was still pretty impressive for me. Like, you know, you just keep getting into those like ten based milestones like woo a thousand woo 400 you know like every hundred i would kind of be pumped up so you had all these you had all these free users and there was all this interest and buzz despite no marketing then competitors come in and they start to offer your product or a very similar product to yours uh for pay and so you you decide at this point i'm not going to resign i'm going to man up and turn it into a company and you relaunch as a business paid accounts did the people just, you know, fork over their money immediately or was there still a moment in there where after you had turned it into a company and decided you're going to start accepting money where, you know, you had all the free users but nobody was interested in paying or did they just sign up right away? Yeah, so that was an interesting thing. You know, it was it was foreign territory to me. When you take a a thing from free to for pay, you know, out of the blue, a lot of people go the route of grandfathering in, you know, the, the people that are already using it. I didn't do that maybe out of laziness or maybe out of like urgency to to put it out there. So when I launched it, I launched it with anyone who signed up within the first year got a six month trial. I basically kind of I, I saw that as a way like, hey, I'm sorry, like I kind of got I got to turn this into like something real. I understand you're using it for free. If you sign up, like I'm not charging anyone, you know, if you sign up before November 1st, you get 180 days free trial, right? Which is like a really long time. And there was maybe a thousand, like after you do some analytics and like and slicing and dicing of who's using it, there was maybe like a thousand potential like paying customers at that point. Mm-hmm. And I, I was just kind of okay with the fact that I wasn't going to convert all of them, right? And, and that's in fact what happened. Like it ended up being that I didn't, I didn't convert everyone. I lost a, a large majority of those people. Sort of, sort of like starting from scratch. And um, but like, I guess any SaaS business, it's kind of like that. It's it's a slow linear growth until you hit that thing that makes you like do that exponential bell curve, and then like everybody uses it. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's been over a little over a year now and we've hit, you know, being fully bootstrapped with zero outside funding, you know, we've been able to 
I, I have hired my first full-time employee, which is absolutely nuts, about a year later. All, you know, just kind of bootstrapping it, staying profitable, staying soluble the entire time. Mm. Well, congrats. Congrats on that for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, for those who don't know, this this is completely open source. So if you wanted to check out Hueboard, you could just go to github.com slash Ryan slash Hueboard, which is always admirable and interesting when we see people building open source products and then also yeah. turning those into businesses that are successful. I think the uh, the stigma is that, you know, that won't work because people will just will just clone it or run it themselves. I mean, your audience is developers in a large part. I guess we can mm-hmm. talk about your growing customer base and how it's turning more enterprise next. But first I want to ask you about the open sourcing of it. I'm sure it was probably open source from the beginning. Is that fair to say? It's been open source from day one or did you open source it at, at a certain point? It was like just open source from day one, right? Like yeah. I just... And so you have I just op- I just threw it out there like hey here's this here's this random yeah. cool thing that I built you know uh, for fun I open sourced it from day one um, I made it MIT just mm-hmm. out of like I guess randomness like oh I'll just pick that one that one sounds good <laughs> and you also um, have a contributor license agreement too how does that differ from the MIT so I actually added that later I added that after. Uh, I turned it into a business. Um, and that was more because w- when it turned into a business, I did, you know, it's just out of ignorance. I had no idea like, well, what if somebody does fork it? It is MIT. So someone could, someone could host it and uh, make zero changes and charge money for it. That is, that is completely within legal realm and you can do it and that's fine. Uh, MIT does not stop you from doing that. So when I launched it, I was contemplating uh, changing the license to AGPL, which would kind of prevent people from doing that in a way, hosting it and then gaining money from it. But then I actually never did that. I just left it. Like at the end of the day, like no one did it. No one forked it and just tried to make money on it. And I'm not the only, like, Hubord is not the only company out there that has that has figured out kind of a way to charge money or 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 at least sort of make a living off of their open source contributions. I mean, Docker's doing it, Vagrant's doing it, you know, Discourse is doing it. Mike per- Perman, I'm probably gonna butcher Aram. his name. Aram. Yeah, we had Mike Aram? on uh, last summer talking about. Right. His business around sidekick. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. he's been able to do a, a really similar thing to Huboard as Huboard, right? And and like productize, he kind of has this open source version and then this pro version, right? And that's kind of the same thing as as Huboard, right? Like you can certainly host Huboard yourself, right? But I think that we're within the realm of reasonable pricing that even if you do it on Heroku, all of the components that run a production instance equal or less than just paying for whoboard.com, right? Which also makes it keep getting developed and right hiring employees and supporting the software, upgrading the software, current version of Rails, you name it, right? Right. One of the things is when when we launched when I launched it in October, you know, it was you couldn't even create issues. You had to go to GitHub 
to create issues. It was literally like <laughs> yeah. so you're just I, like organizing. Right. Read like, only or or not read only, yeah. but not nah, it wasn't read only, only, but it was like it was like maybe I have this perfectionism in me, right? That I was like, well, I don't want to provide a UX that's not as good as GitHub, right? And I saw like creating issues as like, well, you know, there's a lot of ways to create issues. And that's a lot of effort for me to do that. You know, for the most part, I didn't see it as like that big a deal that you had to go to issues, go over to GitHub to create your issues, right? But feature parity became uh, uh, like my highest priority when I started charging money for it, right? Like when you're not charging money for something, you kind of have this leeway to be like, yeah, I don't, I don't have that, right? Yeah, right. But when people are paying money for it, they don't really take that as an excuse, right? So charging money for it, like funded improving of the tools, and that actually goes back into the open source version. So, you know, I wouldn't have done those things if I wasn't charging money for it, right? Like it probably still would, I'd probably still be like, nah, you just go to GitHub for that, right? Or use a command line tool. So coming up to feature parity was a big thing that was funded by getting money. In- increasing the performance is something that is funded by that and enterprise support as well. So, you know, things, things get better if you pay for them, right? Like everything can't be free, I guess. So there's this, uh, this old story about Apple and Dropbox when, uh, back when Steve Jobs Mm. wanted to acquire Dropbox and his kind of took the strategy of making them feel like they needed to be acquired because he told them all you are is a feature. You know, you're not a business, you're a feature. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that was not a winning strategy for him uh, at the time. And we all have seen what has happened with Dropbox, grown to be a, a massive company since then. Um, I think uh, perhaps a naysayer or a few board would say, are you, just, are you not just a feature of something that GitHub could add and then you'd be out of business? Have you thought about that? It, it, you know, it's, it, it's looms in the back of my mind, right? Like, but then I just... I wonder, you know, part of me thinks like whether or not that's really what their focus is, right? Mm-hmm. Like their focus right now is how do we make collaborating and sharing code more important? Like they're, you see it in their entire tool chain is that GitHub is about sharing your code, right? Like you can even see it in their permissions models, right? Like when you give somebody OAuth access to your repo, you get everything. There's no way to just say, oh, give me issues only, right? Uh-huh. Like, I think it flies in the face of their entire business model, right? Like, we, like, they exist to share code. So why would they cripple their own tool and not give you access to code, if that makes sense? Yeah. You know? So well, I would think of it as a as a feature add on top of issues. Like here's a diff, like you said, Hubert was a view. It's a different view into issues. Yeah. Obviously, it's grown. So that was kind of mm-hmm. the the initial feature, the initial conceit. And they've also done some redesigns to issues too. Like it's what's well, gotten you know full width, and there's been enhancements over the years right. of issues too. So they've definitely been paying attention to right the usefulness of issues and um, and according. You know, and according to their blog post, they spent nine months on their their redo, their mm. latest redo of of issues, and you know, nine months of work, and it it didn't really significantly change. Mm-hmm. Um, th- they still, I think, to the core, 
they don't think you need anything more than what is there. And in some aspects, I agree. The original vision and my vision for for Hueboard is not to particularly change the way you should use GitHub. It's kind of to enhance the way that you use GitHub, right? Like, I believe wholeheartedly in GitHub flow. My own my own personal development flow is, right, like, I have master, and master is always deployable. And when I want to work on something, I cut a branch, and then I while I'm in that branch, depending on what I'm working on, every commit is tied to an issue number, right? So that I have like this full traceability into whatever it it, it is or was. And then at the end of that, that turns into a pull request. That feature branch turns into a pull request and somebody other than me looks at it and merges it in, right? And that's how the, like my entire team, the two of us, that's how we work, right? Like, we don't require like a daily stand-up meeting or anything like that. Like we collaborate through like the tool itself, the tool itself, like GitHub itself, and and really, Hubboard is an effort to like enhance that or make that easier or like visualize that workflow, not like change it. You know what I mean? Like, let's, let's ask a different question then. What if, um, let's say, there's a GitHub or listen to this. Let's say it's Chris Wanstroth for what for whatever mm-hmm. reason. He he's listening to the change log. Hi, Chris. By the way. Um, up, and he's like, you know what? I, I like what you did here, Ryan. And he 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 wants to acquire you. Is that an option for you? I, I guess. I don't. I don't know. I would. I would take an unsolicited offer uh, any day. I don't. I don't know necessarily. Do you want it, to become a know, GitHuber? It depends. <laughs> Darren's chuckling over there. I'm I'm, just, everything you know, you're, a hard you're, time, you're, Ryan. Everything for okay, sale at the you're right. Give me a hard time, but like, <laughs> is that an out strategy that I've? I've thought of, of course, right? Sure. Um, maybe. It depends. It, it, like anything, it depends. Yeah. It comes back to that question, too, that Jerry was asking earlier, which is, well, I think even you mentioned it, Ryan, which is that you know you could write an adapter for a different application other than GitHub issues and still take Hueboard and do something with it that's useful. I think what we're trying to get at here is how much anxiety looms over you over the fact that you're building a business on top of a business and that even the data model you don't have control over and any of the day you're not the you're not the um you know the canonical data source even yeah and uh i do i i wouldn't say it keeps me up at night but yeah i think about it i definitely think about it um uh, not being the single source of truth as far as like the viability of a business i'm not like personally i'm not concerned right I have a skill. It's called, you know, I'm a developer. I have a skill. I built this thing. Like, even if it fails, at the end of the day, I'm not going to be unemployable. But yeah, once you turn into a business and you have employees, your concerns change, right? Like, I'm more concerned about the well-being of the person that I convinced to come work for me than I am for my own well-being. So yeah, that really concerns me. Yeah, at the same time, I just don't, I don't think GitHub is in is secretly working on a Kanban view for, for issues. Probably I just, not, yeah. I don't think so. I, I would think <laughs> I'm not that worried about it. I just wondered if you were worried about it. Right. I would think that they're ethical enough to let me know or or at least know, maybe business savvy enough to be like – to at least exhaust a- acquisition mm-hmm. avenues before, yeah. before, before committing their own development time. Right. Yeah. Let's pause the show for a minute. 
Give a shout out to a sponsor, DigitalOcean, simple cloud hosting built for developers. In 55 seconds, you'll have a cloud server with full root access, and it just doesn't get any easier than that. Pricing plans start at only 5 bucks a month for half a gig of RAM, 20 gigs of SSD drive space, one CPU, and one terabyte of transfer. That's a lot for 5 bucks a month. DigitalOcean also has data centers all across the world, New York, San Francisco, Amsterdam, Singapore, and their newest region, London. You can easily migrate your data between those regions, making your uh, data always closest to your users. Use the promo code CHANGELOGNOVEMBER in lowercase. It's important that you use lowercase. CHANGELOGNOVEMBER to get a $10 hosting credit when you sign up. Head to DigitalOcean.com right now to get started and back to the show. You said you, that you know GitHub would be acquisition would be a decent exit strategy for you, but the fact of the matter is is that you don't need an exit strategy at the moment. You have a growing business, a very small, probably uh, overhead, and you have some increasingly large customers. Um, perhaps a surprise to you is how many enterprise customers you have on your homepage. I see Microsoft, Mozilla, Adobe amongst your guy, your customer list. Tell us about the enterprise and uh, your success there and challenges. So on the enterprise site, those are actually SaaS. Users. Oh, are they? They're not. Yeah. Um, most. The dirty little secret is that when you when you get into enterprise, uh, I really am contractually restricted from telling you who actually bought it. Um, hmm. If if that makes sense. So by enterprise, so, you're speaking of a different product. This is an on-premise product as opposed to just like a large enterprise company that's using your SaaS product. Yeah. Over the lifespan of Whoboard, there's been a lot of interest in providing GitHub enterprise support, right? So a lot of people may not be aware of it, but GitHub offers an on-premise version of GitHub. Right. Right? You can go to them and they will give you a virtual machine that has GitHub installed on it. And you can you can basically as simple as importing it into your, you know, your vSphere or your 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 Essex environment, you spin up this VM, you upload like this package, they call it the GitHub package, the GHP, and a license file, and, and you hit a big green button, and you know, like an hour later, the thing's fully provisioned, and it is literally like GitHub inside your network behind your firewall, which is really incredible way to like deliver software. Um, it's, it's really fascinating. And there's, there was like tons of interest for people that were like, Hey, we want to use Whoboard for, for our internal GitHub enterprise instance. And it, it seemed plausible, you know, like <laughs> you weren't, you weren't sure. Well, you know, it was like, well, they claim that their API is fully compatible, like mm-hmm. it should work the same. So, you know, it should be as easy as, you know, well, just point it at GitHub Enterprise and it should work, right? right. It turns out that big companies are, are not particularly interested in, they, they weren't or aren't like interested in taking the open source version of Hueboard and sort of hosting it themselves and pointing it at their GitHub Enterprise, Right. Like there's some challenges around configuring it correctly and updating it. And like you're going to have to pay a full-time engineer, right? Or, or somebody 
to maintain the thing. Mm-hmm. To know how to like if I made changes to the to the database, right? Like it uses CouchDB. That's not like a widely used or commonly known thing. Like how do you migrate documents in CouchDB? That's that's kind of a a, a, a thing that isn't going to be easy for me to like put in a wiki. And I'm not particularly going to want to sit down with somebody who isn't paying me money yeah. and walk them through how to do it, right? I'm likely going to be like, no, that's okay. I'm not, I'm not interested. That being said, you know, there's a ton of interest in, in enterprise support. And, you know, maybe me being a perfectionist, I really wanted to give the same experience as GitHub Enterprise itself, right? So we, did, we, we set out to build a virtual appliance that, you know, we kind of like reverse engineered GitHub Enterprise itself and tried to build the, like the exact same experience. Did you collaborate with them at all on that? Did you, did you like work with the GitHub Enterprise team by any chance? So no and yes. At the time, it was like, for a long time, it was this, it was this growing interest in it. And I was like, well, does anybody want to like loan me their GitHub Enterprise environment so I can test this thing? You know, at the time, I didn't have any money. I'm not going to go pay $5,000 for a licensed GitHub Enterprise just to test something that I don't even know anyone would pay for, right? And so I, I asked GitHub for, you know, a license to, to GitHub Enterprise. And they were like, oh, yeah, here, here's a 90-day here's a free trial. And then, you know, like 90 days later, I'd, I still didn't have a product, you know. <laughs> and so, you know, I think p- part of that effort kind of got them, got them in gear uh, to, to start their developer program. And so now, like, you just enroll in their developer program and you do get, you get a license to, to GitHub Enterprise now, which is really nice for, for integrators like myself. But as far as, like, building the the virtual appliance itself like there wasn't a whole lot of back and forth with the enterprise uh, github I, I i did ask them you know we we asked them some questions around like you know how are you how are you exporting you know how are you creating this ova that that like cleanly installs into vmware and stuff and they actually like were really helpful and uh someone from their team like provided us with like this code that like I think that was like our one hanging point was like we couldn't get it to cleanly in, import into VMware without it complaining about uh, like a its manifest file being corrupted, hmm. and so yeah they definitely helped with that yeah yeah they helped I I'm gonna yeah they helped <laughs> they helped that was nice. a really long explanation to yes that's well the it's help. it's just interesting because I mean that's that's one of their obvious. Uh, directions in their business and you just wonder how flexible they are to and and even them helping you with that in enterprise integration might give you some you know signs of bright spots whether or not they're going to you know consume you at some point well, what i mean well said yeah consume, consume <laughs> you, know, you take you over well eat you, whatever you know stomp on you or acquire you whatever you want to say it sounds like you had some technical challenges around creating this virtual appliance. Uh, any interesting stories or neat solutions that came out of that uh, technology-wise um, or maybe even the toolkits that you're using to build these this uh, virtual appliance? You know, the interesting thing is there isn't, there isn't a lot of 
tools out there uh, for this. Um, no Stack Overflow? Not really. You know, there's no there's no guide or screencast on like or blog about like how to how to create a virtual appliance. Like, how do you create this virtual? You know, how do you create this VM that gets deployed on someone else's network? That you know, if you if you sell this thing to a Fortune 500 company, you're going to see big boy networks. I like to call right. Like these things are like lockdown. You need. You need like if you want to reach out to the internet or outside of their firewall, you need credentials to get out of their, you know, their uh, proxy servers. So things that you take for granted, like gem install or bundle install, try to do that without the internet. You know, <laughs> things like apt-get install without the internet, handling things like self-signed SSL certificates. Man, I can't do anything like, without the internet. I try to get on a uh, on an airplane thing. I'm gonna get a whole bunch of coding done. It's gonna be awesome. And I've and then I realize I didn't prepare some sort of docs I need, and I'm just like, screw it. I'm gonna watch a movie or something. Right. Funny. And then and then supporting something that you can't touch or yeah, how do you do or that? See, uh, poorly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um. It's it's a lot of back and forth. Sometimes it's screen sharing. Yeah. Um, you know one of one of the biggest challenges usually is around uh, SSL. People will configure customers. Sorry, will configure GitHub Enterprise with a self signed SSL certificate, or they'll use like a certificate chain that isn't installed by default in Linux. And so getting those onto the machine is probably the biggest hurdle. Um, and then, you know, you run into challenges of like, you know, you have to, you have to configure the network to speak to internal name servers to, you know, cause like, how do you resolve github.company.com when it isn't in, you know, a, a public name server, it's mm-hmm. in an internal name server, right? Like, so you're given this string of this host name, but you have to talk to an internal you have to talk to like an internal DNS, DNS server, server yeah. to get the IP of the machine. Yeah, it, it was challenging, right? And coming from a, a guy who started his career as a .NET developer and then did this out of a whim, wasn't even a Ruby developer, you know, and having to debug some of these things like open SSL peer verification, you know, and like, mm-hmm. you know, going from a front-end heavy developer like, to a full-fledged DevOps engineer is something I never expected my career to take take a path to. So is it worth it? <laughs> it's it's worth it. Like, um, so i've I've had a I've had a couple people who they're they're also building kind of GitHub focused products that like extend GitHub. I've had them approach me and say. You know, ask me questions like, how did you start this? What's your relationship with, like, with GitHub? And I've also reached out to other ones like Travis CI. I've had conversations with um, Matthias, I think his name is, you know, and asked him questions about, like, how, how they do stuff. And, you know, it comes up, like, do you, do you regret, like, doing enterprise support? And, you know, at the end of the day, no, of course not. Like, like it's very lucrative, but 
you're talking about in some instances it's a 10 month sales cycle so unless you can unless you have that saas backing to like sustain you through that 10 month sales cycle you're it's not going to be fun right it's a it's a lot of work there's a lot of red tape you have to go through um to sell to to large enterprises but it's a learning experience i'll tell you like if you guys ever really want to know like the contract negotiations and you know stuff like that pan the butt it can be it can be well since we're talking about pains in the butts maybe it's a good segue to to something that's probably a deeper topic which we may not have the full amount of time we should actually give this so i don't know if it's something we could talk about in you know the the sub 10 minutes we have for this show left or not but um, can you talk briefly about the technical stack that you built upon? You know, I know you started in 2011 from a Java background. Uh, .NET. Used Ruby. Or sorry, was it .NET? It was .NET. .NET. Okay, I remember talking earlier to you about uh, somebody threw on a Java pro- uh, project. I thought Java for a second. You know, so, you know, doing Ruby mainly to use Heroku for free or one dyno. Can you talk about your tech stack and just what you're using to any degree? Uh, yeah, sure. The Whoboard API itself or is, is effectively a Sinatra app. I've rewrote it probably four times and um, like improving it and stuff. And I settled on, uh, and you know, I'll give a little shout out to, uh, I forget his name, Andrew Macaray. That's what I call him. He, he wrote like a tool called Monocle, and I think he has a new like uh, app called... He's a big Sinatra guy. He wrote a tool called Trevi, which is like a little like a some patterns he uses to build Sinatra apps. Um, so I eventually refactored to that, and 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 it's good. Um, I think eventually we will rewrite majority of it in Rails. Um, I like to say that there's a lot of paper cuts with Sinatra, and once you get to a certain size, it's just a lot easier just to just go with rails like rails is pretty fantastic in that regard um the front end i rewrote in ember js and love it it's great uh i highly recommend ember it is it's such a when did you rewrite oh last year january ish of last year is when we when i released the the full ember rewrite previously it was backbone and uh you know, three years ago, Backbone wasn't even 1.0. I think I started the project with Backbone 0.3.3. <laughs> so uh, it was definitely bleeding edge from the start. And even with Ember, it was still pre 1.0. You know, we store some things in CouchDB. We, of course, use Redis as part of our stack, uh, Memcached. We do some real-time communication stuff with uh, WebSockets. And that was kind of a, a journey I started out with Socket.io. Uh, that that worked great for like two and a half years. I Literally, it was like 40 lines of JavaScript that I never touched for a year and a half. And then uh, that, that, I had some problems with that and moved to a hand-rolled like Sinatra streaming server. And then I had some problems with that and then uh, eventually settled on Fay. I've used Fay in the past. Nice tool. It's, it's not perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, I really wish that I could use something like Pusher or PubNub, mm-hmm. but um, why can't you? 
Enterprise. Enterprise. <laughs> to be to be short and sweet. Yeah. Enterprise. Enterprise. Uh, mm. I have to be really cautious in in particular about the technology choices that we make is because everything still needs to run on a vm Mm -hmm. for enterprise right so like i don't some of these really fantastic services are kind of out of reach unless they're easily hosted you know yeah um we're doing some things around right now we're doing some things around improving your performance uh making speeding things up and, and building some business insights and some analytics into uh like you know, lead times of cards, things of that nature. Uh, we've settled on the Elk Stack, Logstash, uh, Elasticsearch, Kibana. Puppet, of course, is the magic that that GitHub Inter- or Whoboard Enterprise is built upon. And then, you know, shout out to Heroku. They've been fantastic. We're still on them to this day. I think uh, I think Whoboard chugs along. I think we have 6,000, you know, average monthly active users, you know, really pounding it. And we're on two extra large dynos. Nice. Or not extra large, but the, the 2X dynos. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's it's pretty great. Um, we have some things on AWS, of course. I guess that's pretty much the whole rundown of, of our stack. Awesome, man. Well, unfortunately, we're running out of time. Otherwise, we would question you on individual choices why ember why couch we love those kind totally. of questions but uh i have more questions we just can't we just can't answer we can't them right now. we can't uh, ask them uh, can we maybe ask this one question before we ask what the you got questions? what you got is uh i don't know if you've and maybe this is a short one too which is the fact that you're open source and accepting contributions and pull requests so i know we talked about, about the license there but then we just kind of close a loop on how you deal with um, forks and pull requests back to the open source version and how that plays into just this fact because it, it brought that up in my mind whenever you mentioned enterprise and how every time you make a choice on what to use and code to add is based on whether or not enterprise can support it you know we don't get a whole lot of of pull requests and uh, bad on me there's one in particular that's been open for a while which is uh add milestone um you know it's been open for a couple months and Unfortunately for him, it was like in the middle of a big rewrite that I made, and and so some of his stuff didn't merge in cleanly. Accepting con- contributions is hard. It's kind of it's difficult ethically, and it's difficult like um, legally too. I don't really know the specifics, but um, I guess to try to cover all my bases, I I do ask people to sign a, a contributor license agreement, um, which basically just says you know kind of do whatever we want to do with your code that being said anything within that's contrib- the mit license though right right within the mit license you know just ethically and and, and for me like if, if somebody contributes something significant to the open source version uh i i will do my best to to continue to support it for forever like i'm i'm not going to take large contributions lightly right like if someone contributes something that's that's significant i'm going to make sure that i can support it because you can't really trust somebody else to to be there forever, right? right. So if I do, uh, I will make sure that it that it's going to be supported forever. Other than that, like there's people that have forked it. Crushpath is a big one. I think they're they're a San Francisco startup. I know that they run a fork and they've added tons of features that that are important to them. Huh. Um, 
And then for a spell, uh, Shopify had a, had a fork that they were working on, but that kind of disappeared. I'm not sure if they privatized that or or what went on there. If they decided to do something else and deleted it, but you know there are there are people that exist that that have forked it and added features that they care about, but they necessarily haven't contributed back. If that makes sense. Sure. All right, Ryan. Well, it's time for those closing questions. As a change log listener, you probably saw this one coming. Our old favorite. Who is your programming hero? This kind of changes on a frequent basis. Uh, I always look up to a good friend of mine, Charles Lowell, Cowboy D on Twitter. But lately, my my programming hero has really been my girlfriend, who is a, a budding female learning developer. About six months ago, she left her cushy support job and leap did a leap of faith and she's learning to be a developer. So nice. You know, that that really it's fun to see her learn and grow and to do it at, at kind of a, a later age as well. You know, when you already have an established career. And Taking the risk, you know? Yeah, it's yeah. it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, I I'm kind of in awe and a bit of a hero to me. So gotta give a shout out there. Awesome man. Make sure she listens to this so you get them brownie points too. Don't miss out on them brownie points. Um, next up, and a new question, trying to share the the podcast love a little bit and uh, give some shout outs to different podcasts around the ecosystem. So uh, you're a podcast listener. Please, if you would, share us, share with us a couple of your favorite podcasts. I'm, I'm a big fan of the JRE, the Joe Rogan Experience. Um, if you guys haven't heard of it, uh, Joe Rogan, yes, the one and only Fear Factor host from way back in the day. He has one of the most popular podcasts uh, in the world. And, you know, strap in. It's three hours apiece. But <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I, I enjoy it. Like, you think we should do the change for three hours? That's, a, or what? that's a long experience <laughs> right there. It's a long yeah. experience. Uh, what else? Any other, any other shows you got on your I listen your to you guys, app? of course. I'll listen to the, pro, the Frontside podcast. Um, like front-end development or design or what's that? The front side, it's it's Charles's little just personal thing. Cool. I've listened to Ruby Rogues and JavaScript Jabber. Uh, sometimes I still tune in to Herding Code, which is like a, a .NET focused one. Uh, I'll listen to the Ruby 5x5. Five five. Mm-hmm. I mean Ruby 5. Ruby 5. The Ruby 5? 5 5x5. Five 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 you mix Ruby 5x5. Five five. And I was like, eh, is that a new one? Could be a new okay. one. No. Ruby 5. Then you got uh, you also have a Ruby uh, Ruby on Rails podcast on Five by Five, so that's right. You can probably add that one to your list too. Like that show, you know. We obviously love podcasts. We appreciate you listening to our show. That's totally cool. Um, and I guess to wrap up the show, we you know it's been great talking to you. I know we saw you back at uh, Keep Ruby Weird in Austin. Uh, what was that? October, Jared? We were there. Somewhere. October. Yeah, October. September. October. Mm-hmm. That was good times. That was good times. Uh, we do have some pending video we shot there, and you'll get to see Ryan's awesome face on the video, sharing once again his other programming heroes. Not uh, you didn't mention your girlfriend in that one, but maybe maybe she wasn't your hero. Keeping then. it fresh, keeping it fresh. Yeah, Ryan has been uh, great having you on the show. I know uh, we're definitely excited about where you're where you're going with this, and you know it's fun to see. We've seen this time and time again. You mentioned Mike Param and and others, uh, Tim Caswell. The list goes on of people that have been on the show that you know have done something in open source and found a way to make it free and open source, but still make a business out of it. 
and support it. And we think that's that's always great when and uh, we want to highlight that when that when we get a chance to do so. So um, yeah, I really appreciate you guys letting well, me on. One thing I want to say too, just as a, as a close to this, uh, as a two part thing. One to promote our issues, or sorry, our, our ping issues on GitHub, and two just to kind of maybe get a, a shout out from listeners of the show that use Hubeboard. If you are a user of Hubeboard, or if you love this show, go on to our GitHub issues. It's uh, GitHub.com, of course, slash the change log slash ping, and submit a new issue. Um, if there isn't one yet, and if there already is one, just go and throw a comment on there and give a shout out back to Ryan about just using Hubeboard and what you thought of this show or whatever, that'd be super cool to just kind of see who listens to the show and see who's using Hubeboard and try to connect the dots a bit. But uh, uh, we do have some pretty awesome sponsors that help make this show uh, possible. We got CodeShip. Definitely love CodeShip. Who doesn't want to have tested code in production, right? That's 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 the name of the game, right? Rackspace and TopTal keeping us on the airwaves. Yes, Rackspace, CodeShip, and TopTal friends of the show they they support us they love us and we hope that uh uh you love them too but uh that's it for this week of the change law we'll be back next week but for now let's say goodbye goodbye